48K News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Steve Dunthorne. Tonight's headlines. Schools are told they can start their new academic years as planned, but classes can only be held online. The number of new coronavirus infections in Hong Kong drops below 100 for the first time in almost two weeks. And local experts question Beijing's reported plan to test everyone in Hong Kong for the virus. The government says schools can begin their new academic years as planned in the coming weeks, but classes can only be taught online because of the coronavirus situation. As well as primaries and secondaries, the ban on face-to-face classes and other campus activities will also apply to international schools, special schools, kindergartens and tutorial centres. The Education Secretary, Kevin Young, says he hopes to be able to announce the resumption of normal classes as soon as possible. At this stage, because of some of the uncertainty of the development of the COVID-19 epidemic, it's really difficult to say at this stage when the normal face-to-face lecture or tutoring or or teaching uh, will be allowed at this stage. We will closely monitor the development of the epidemic and uh, we'll give sufficient notice to the schools when we think that it's appropriate or it is safe for school to resume the uh, normal lecture. Hong Kong has recorded 80 coronavirus infections today, the first time in almost two weeks that we've had fewer than 100 new cases. Dr. Joanne Shukwan from the Centre for Health Protection says it's too early to tell whether numbers will keep falling and people need to remain vigilant. Meanwhile, the government has extended various social distancing measures, including venue closures and a two-person gathering limit, for another week until August 11th. The leader of a team of mainland medical experts who've arrived in Hong Kong to help tackle the coronavirus situation here says he hopes they can help expand the city's testing capabilities to more than 200,000 people a day. Priscilla Ung reports. Yu Wunder says his mission is to help Hong Kong get into a position where it can conduct extensive testing for COVID-19. In an interview with Xinhua News Agency, he says the aim is to test around 200,000 people or even more every day, up from 10,000 at present. Mr. Yu says his team is going to meet representatives of the Liaison Office, the Food and Health Bureau and the Hospital Authority and get a better understanding of the daily operations of three mainland-based private laboratories in Hong Kong before deciding what to do next. He concedes there will be a few challenges to overcome, such as differences in the mainland and Hong Kong legal systems, but says his team will be professional and he's confident they'll complete their mission. Reports say Beijing wants the team to test every single person in Hong Kong for the virus. But University of Hong Kong microbiologist Ho Pak Lung isn't sure citywide COVID tests are the way to go, saying it's much more important to focus resources on contact tracing and conducting tests on close contacts of confirmed coronavirus patients. Respiratory medicine expert David Hoi from the Chinese University has echoed Dr. Ho's comments, saying it would be extremely difficult to conduct mandatory tests on every single Hong Konger. He says the move would require a citywide lockdown where nobody is allowed to leave their homes and enormous manpower would be required to pick up the samples within a week. Professor Hoi says it would be much more practical to carry out tests on high-risk groups, such as those working in the retail or customer services sectors.
The chief executive, Carrie Lam, has again insisted that she had no choice but to postpone the LegCo election, saying she would be the one to blame if the polls went ahead and that the virus situation got even worse. In a video posted on her Facebook page, the CE told former LegCo president Rita Fan that conspiracy theorists believed the move was due to fears of a major election defeat for the pro-establishment camp. Mrs Lamb says she hopes society won't be divided by such rumours, adding that the Electoral Affairs Commission also believes that holding the poll next month as originally planned would be too risky. The government says it suspended the extradition deal with New Zealand at Beijing's instruction. Wellington earlier suspended the treaty, citing the SAR's national security law. The Hong Kong and central governments criticised New Zealand's move, saying it represented interference in China's internal affairs. You're tuned to RTHK. The time is just coming up to five minutes past 11. Beijing official Zheng Xiaoming is on a visit to Hong Kong amid debate on what to do with the Legislative Council. Now the elections are being put back by a year. His trip comes just days before the next meeting of the NPC Standing Committee, which is expected to make a decision on LegCo. Francis Sitt reports. There was no announcement about Mr Zhang's visit to the city, but he is believed to be seeking views on the vacuum created by postponing the LegCo polls. Executive Councillor Joseph Yam and pro-government lawmakers Ma Feng Kuok, Chang Kim Po and Junius Ho were spotted going into the liaison office, apparently to meet Mr Zhang, who is the deputy director of the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office. RTHK has learned that mixed views were expressed on whether four pro-democracy lawmakers disqualified from the elections should be allowed to stay on in the legislature over the coming year. While some said Elvin Young, Kwok Ka Ki, Dennis Kwok and Kenneth Lang should be allowed to remain in the council to avoid unnecessary problems, others said it isn't reasonable to let them continue as lawmakers. One of those at the meeting, pro-establishment lawmaker Paul Tse, says it would be contradictory to let the four back in, and people who don't uphold the basic law and swear allegiance to the SAR are not qualified to be legislators. He also said electoral officers should finish processing the nominations for the now postponed elections so people will find out whether more incumbents will be banned from running again. I don't think it's logically and politically or ethically consistent to allow those who should have been disqualified had their nomination been formally or completely processed by the election officers to be able to survive in a way. And those who lodged their candidacy earlier and be declared disqualified, they should not be able to join the upcoming year. I think that's logically rather absurd. Mr. Tae says the legislature should focus on livelihood issues in the coming year, such as anti-epidemic policies and reforms to the MPF scheme. A Hong Kong constitutional law expert says Chief Executive Carrie Lam's decision to postpone next month's LegCo election for a year discredits the SAR. Professor Michael Davis, who's based in the US these days, told Mike Weeks that it's straight out of the playbook of authoritarian regimes to postpone polls and to disqualify opposition candidates. There's a lot of suspicion that this is more about the risk uh, of losing the election than it is about the pandemic. Singapore, South Korea and many other places have done well. Hong Kong is not a poor, underdeveloped place. It's a very high-tech place. I have no doubt they could have solved this problem. This is one of the common moves of authoritarian regimes around the world. They promise elections in the future and then they delay them. 
Yeah, we saw that in Thailand a few years ago. So, I mean, this is, is a, a very common tactic, and I think one that discredits Hong Kong and one that uh, she should have avoided. Well, she could have gone, couldn't she, under the LegCo ordinance to postpone the election by 14 days. She could have done that repeatedly. <laughs> but Carrie Lam said uh, she didn't think she could do that because people would think she's abusing her power if she did do that. But this, by delaying it a, a year, allows, again, for the National People's Congress Standing Committee to become involved, doesn't it? It does indeed, and also it involves the use of the uh, emergency regulations ordinance again. It's like we never heard of that ordinance until Carrie Lam took over, and now we heard it over mask control, and we're hearing it again now over elections. Uh, you know, I, I just think the, the average person in Hong Kong is going to be very suspicious. The, the issue of democracy in Hong Kong is especially sensitive. And so delaying elections is sort of like out of the authoritarian playbook. And I, I think ordinary people would be very concerned about it and be surprised that, that she couldn't come up with a better way to deal with the pandemic. The University of Hong Kong Student Union has urged the institution's governing council to revoke its decision to dismiss associate law professor Benny Tai because of his convictions over the 2014 Occupy protests. The union has handed over a petition signed by 2,500 students, staff members and alumni, asking the council to explain why it didn't follow the Senate's advice and let Professor Tai keep his job. Here's the union's president, Eddie Jay. We hope that the council will actually explain their action and decision before the 10th of August. If not, we will actually have follow-up actions targeting the 18 council members who actually voted for it on 28th of July. We believe that institutes all over the world and the academia is actually now know what the council has done to undermine the academic freedom. So we believe that these institutes will now also condemn and boycott those members as well. So we will try our best to make them happen. Hong Kong and Macau scientists say a coronavirus vaccine they're developing will enter clinical trials in the next few months. If it proves to be effective and safe, millions of doses could be reserved for Hong Kong people. Candice Wong reports. Scientists from Polytechnic University and the Macau University of Science and Technology say they've had a significant breakthrough with their COVID-19 vaccine, which they believe will be safe, cheap and effective. Dr. Johnson Lau from PolyU says their studies suggest the vaccine will induce a potent antibody response and has been 100% successful in trials on monkeys, rats and rabbits. We were able to show that the uh, plasma from monkeys after their first dose already shows sufficient protection. On top of that, we also show that it's very safe. So therefore, I think the most fair way to comment on what we have compared to other uh, competitors is that their data looks promising. Our data also look very promising. Dr. Lau says they have been studying how to stop the virus from expanding inside the body. Basically what happened is that a virus will only cause damage if it can replicate, reproduce itself from 1 to 100 to 1 million. The way to do it is that it has to get to inside the cell to avoid to replicate. The way for it to get inside the cell is that there's a receptor on cell surface for it to bind to and then it will get to inside the cell and replicate. If you have a vaccine that can induce the antibody, that can block the virus from binding to the receptor. You're basically asking the virus, I'm not going to allow you to replicate, therefore, please go away. 
The vaccine hasn't been tested on humans yet, but Dr. Lau says he plans to start trials in months, if not weeks. We are right now in the uh, process of a ranking, and uh, a couple of countries are interested, but we are, these are really dependent on the uh, speed of the regulatory approval to initiate clinical studies. Since uh, we, we are still having a number of factors that will impact with regard to how uh, we're going to proceed or which country to go first. So uh, allow us to say this way, the clinical studies will be commenced soon. What we will not be able to say is that we cannot commit ourselves to which country to suffer. The doctor says some manufacturers have shown an interest in making the vaccine and a contract has already been secured with one producer in Taiwan. He says the contracts drafted for manufacturers specify that 8 million doses in the first batch should be earmarked for Hong Kong and Macau residents. The president of the Philippines, Rodrigo Duterte, has promised to hire 10,000 more medical workers as the country struggles to cope with a spike in coronavirus cases. From Manila, here's the BBC's Howard Johnson. Hospitals in Manila have been reporting full-to-capacity coronavirus wards and exhausted staff. On Sunday, the country recorded more than 5,000 new cases of the virus, the highest one-day rise this year. It brings the national total to more than 100,000 cases with more than 2,000 deaths. Today, Mr Duterte acknowledged the frontliners' hard work, but in the same speech, he also called them rampaging doctors and taunted them to stage a revolution against him to see if they could do a better job of handling the crisis. CLP Holdings has returned to the black, posting a profit of more than $6 billion for the first half of this year. That compares to a loss of more than $900 million during the same period last year. More than half of the profit came from Hong Kong on the back of rising electricity demand from the residential sector as people spend more time at home due to the pandemic. During an online news conference, Group Director Betty Ewan said that the dine-in ban on restaurants in light of the outbreak has had a limited impact on its business. She spoke through an interpreter. Compared to other industries, the impact on us is relatively smaller because for residential users, the energy consumption has increased a lot and this can offset the decline in other sectors. So in the second half of the year, if the pandemic is under control, then the impact on us, overall speaking, will not be too big. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Schools are told they can start their new academic years as planned, but classes can only be held online. The number of new coronavirus infections in Hong Kong drops below 100 for the first time in almost two weeks. And local experts question Beijing's reported plan to test everybody in the SAR for the virus. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's News Wrap programme. HSBC's first half profits plunged by 65%, with the banking giant taking a hammering from the global coronavirus crisis and worsening tensions between China and the US. Noel Quinn, chief executive of the UK-based lender, described the first six months of the year as some of the most challenging in living memory. Dickie Wong, the head of research at Kingston Securities, told Jim Gould he doesn't see signs that performance will improve. 
in the second half. Honestly speaking, for um, HSBC first half uh, result down quite significantly, 65% of its uh, pre-tax profit, actually definitely within my expectation. And as we all know, increasing tension between China and US and also the COVID-19 cases in Hong Kong and, and also everywhere else in, in Europe and US definitely will hurt its business and inevitably its um, profit no matter interest or non-interest profits. So um, honestly speaking, for like a British bank like HSBC and also Standard Charter, that they can't give a dividend for the whole year. So for a local investor, they just don't have the, the reason to hold on to this stock. So definitely why the reason behind the share price drop even below to its um, 11 years ago when the price hit uh, $33 back in the financial tsunami. 11 years ago. So honestly speaking, I, I don't really see its uh, business environment will improve in the second half. Mm. Uh, uh, the bank has said it's keeping its dividend policy under review. I mean, is it likely that uh, shareholders will hear any good news on that front? Well, I, I don't really think so, because HSBC, along with others like Standard Chartered, they're British banks, so they're regulated by the, the British government. Mm. So they, they really can't do when they're not allowed to pay out dividend. So in terms of dividend payout, and also, as I said, they're actually um, moving ahead with their restructuring. They may accelerate it to, to cut jobs around the world, but they just simply can't, can't catch up. Even the operating expenses slightly uh, fall, but as I said, like the net interest margin, like the bank's profitability, I don't really, really see any big, big hope. Uh, in the second quarter. The CEO, uh, Noel Quinn, I mean, he did refer to the bank's vulnerability amid the tensions between China and the West. Mm -hmm. But then he did say the bank was well-placed to fulfil the role of bridging the economies of East and West. I mean, how do you see the situation developing for HSBC? Well, in my point of view, its management can't please everywhere, um, all the governments around the world. So they want to like, please know uh, the Chinese government and support new policy or rules in Hong Kong. But probably the, the U.S. government or maybe the, the British government, government are, are not happy. So I don't really think they can really do this to the bridge between the East and West. I mean, the bank's operations in Asia were a highlight once again, a pre-tax profit of uh, 7.4 billion U.S. dollars. Would you expect an even greater focus on China and Asia in the future? Oh, that's no question asked. Actually, um, Greater China and also Hong Kong are uh, the most important business for HSBC uh, as a group so far. But um, honestly speaking, um, they, they set aside like almost seven billions um, of uh, provision um, this year. And um, they also uh, will have to cut um, more jobs around the world. So I really think that their business in 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 the greater China will also slow down, there's no question asked, because um, the, even the Chinese uh, economy is picking up after the, the pandemic, but um, everywhere else, including Hong Kong, the pandemic is not over. Mm. So um, what will I see is that they may have to cut more jobs and slim, uh, trim down its expenses, but um, 
it doesn't really help its profitability. And that was Dickie Wong, the head of research at Kingston Securities. The Clean Air Network says it's very concerned that there's been no update on the government's blueprint to improve the city's air quality. The government's clean air plan, published in 2013, is due to expire at the end of this year. Patrick Fung, chief executive of the Clean Air Network, told Richard Pine that he's anxious about the lack of information surrounding the administration's plans to tackle air pollution both here and in the Pearl River Delta in the years ahead. The Environment Bureau of the government committed in 2019 the intention to draw up a new clean air plan and the process should be expected to be commenced this year but we have no charge anything from them. And the cleaner plan published back in 2013 uh, will be expired at the end of this year. So we are very um, anxious about uh, why there is no news from the government and how we are going to clean up Hong Kong there after this year. Do you have any idea why we may not have heard anything about this new clean air plan since the budget earlier this year? We don't know. We have not heard anything. For one thing, I think some of the district councils have actually voiced out their concern about this as well. The Sham Shui Po District Council, the Wong Tai Sin, the Kun Tong District Council, and the Eastern District Council as well, they have passed a motion that seeks the government support to conduct a public engagement process before the launch of the Clean Air Plan. However, we have not heard from the government yet the response on these calls from the district councils. Okay, so let's look at how Hong Kong and regionally we're doing in terms of air quality. The government just recently put out some data for 2019. Can you just tell us a little bit about what was revealed in that? The report revealed that the level of ozone has reached a 14 years high. And also, since 2014, we saw the concentration level of PM10, PM2.5 and nitrogen dioxide has been improving until last year. So back in 2019, we see there was actually a pause, a plateau, that this improvement has not been made among these three pollutants. And especially the nitrogen dioxide has even worsened compared to 2018. And there was a um, continuous improvement on sulfur dioxide. So these are the main observations we have from the report. Why do you think that the improvement is maybe slowing down a little bit? Uh, there are a couple of factors, including there has not been new policy measures imposed by the regional governments, including the Guangdong and Hong Kong SAR governments, to further reduce the emission source of those pollutants. There are other factors as well, for example, the growth of the number of vehicular traffic in Hong Kong, as well as some of the vehicular fleets has been aging. So these are possible reasons for why these improvements over the past few years were neutralized by these worsening pollution sources. Hmm. Okay, so when we actually do see a new clean air plan, what would Clean Air Network like to see included in that? We'd like to see at least in two areas. First of all, on the cross-bureau and department collaboration within the Hong Kong SLR government. We know that the Clean Air Plan was published by the Environment Bureau back in 2013 in co-effort with other bureaus as well, including the Transport and Housing Bureau, the Development Bureau, as well as the Health Department. However, we do not see any specific target that was established towards these bureaus. So we don't know what 
they have done. And in the nuclear plan, we want to have a very specific target to be established for, for example, transport bureau, how we are going to limit the growth of the number of cars on the road, etc. And the other aspect is that on the exposure control, it was stated back in the Clean Air Plan at 2013 that Hong Kong is reformulating our own air quality policy to focus on health protection by aiming to manage not only air pollution concentrations, but also on population exposure. However, for the past few years, we do not hear anything very concrete in terms of data collection or identification of exposure black spot in the district level. So this is the other thing that we would like to see in the new Clean Air Plan. Patrick Fung, the chief executive of the Clean Air Network, talking to Richard Pine. And responding to an RTHK inquiry, the Environment Bureau said the government is preparing to update the Clean Air Plan and is looking at various measures to improve air quality. The Bureau said the work is scheduled for completion in the first half of next year. The Australian state of Victoria has declared a state of disaster after a surge in coronavirus infections. New lockdown rules have been imposed and residents of the state capital, Melbourne, are subject to a curfew between the hours of 8pm and 5am. The moves come after Victoria recorded its deadliest day since the pandemic began, with 13 more deaths. RTHK's Australia correspondent, Jerry Gannon, told Anna-Marie Evans that these are the toughest measures put in place so far in the state. This is as bad as it gets. The curfew is from 8pm to 5am. These restrictions, these are called stage 4 restrictions, are the most severe that we have seen since this outbreak began. And across all industries, about a half a million people are already working from home. About a quarter of a million have been stood down since this thing began. And um, another quarter of a million are to stay at home for the duration of stage four. So effectively, there's a million workers who are not traveling to and from work every day. Now, that's a a fairly uh, substantial chunk of the workforce being taken out of circulation effectively. So the uh, sectors, they're broken into three groups, major government projects that they look at reducing staff safely, construction sites of more than three stories would have to reduce their workforce to no more than 25%, and home construction, home dwelling construction will continue, but no more than five people on the, on site. So these are now the toughest restrictions that we've had since this pandemic uh, began. Are there, are there any reasons why Victoria not as well as some other the other states? Well, I think you could lay the blame, if you want to do it that way, on some people who believed that this was not all that serious and they continued to carry on their lives, uh, going to work, uh, socialising, going out and about. And, and that is believed to have been where the bulk of these cases has come from. But it has been escalating over the past week. And try as they might, every possible method has been used to try and curtail it, but, but, but it hasn't worked. It's now gone into the, the aged care centre uh, in Geelong. Uh, 18 residents and five staff have tested positive, and, and uh, it, it's, a, it's called the Open South Valley uh, Aged Care. 18 residents and five staff positive. 
and uh, Australian defence nurses were sent over there to try and uh, you know uh, uh, keep keep things uh, under control. So where I guess you could say that Victorians were their own worst enemy in, in many respects, and that they failed to adhere to you know strict conditions that had been imposed, such as wearing face masks, not consorting together in large groups, and going out and about when they absolutely didn't need to. Yeah, indeed. Um, same story elsewhere. But um, in terms of the healthcare system within Victoria, how well placed is it to cope with the rising number of those infected? Well, it's struggling at the moment, and I, I know today that, uh, that some nurses have been have been brought in from New Zealand to to bolster up the case. So, when you see that kind of thing happening, you know that uh, the health system is seriously uh, under pressure. This is, you know, this is completely unprecedented. We're in in a situation that has never been seen before uh, in Australia, and especially in Victoria. Victoria now has confirmed 11,937 uh, cases. There have been 136 deaths, which is the highest of all the states and territories uh, in, in the country. So it is in the most serious uh, situation. So um, uh, restrictions are now sort of being uh, advised from other states about travelling to Victoria. In fact, you know, WA, Western Australia, the the, uh, the state in which I live, uh, we've had a lockdown for a number of weeks now where our Premier, Mark McGowan, has not allowed people to come in from other states. And notable among that is the mining magnate uh, Clive Palmer, who's got mining interests in Western Australia. He has taken Supreme Court action uh, against the, the the government to try and uh, to be allowed into into Western Australia. The interesting thing is that he hadn't even filed a proper application to, to do that. So uh, I think his case has been taken with a pinch of salt by many people. Our Australia correspondent Jerry Gannon there. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. There is a price to pay for taking drugs. No matter what amount of drugs you take, you will surely lose much more. Taking cocaine and ice may make you feel high at the time. You may think they can relieve stress, but you could soon lose everything. Is it worth losing your life to drugs? Call 186-186 or send a message via WhatsApp or WeChat on 9816-186. Radio 3 Weather. The weather forecast for tonight and tomorrow, mainly cloudy with occasional showers and isolated thunderstorms. Temperatures will range between 26 and 30 degrees with winds that are moderate southerlies. The outlook, the showers will be heavy at times with thunderstorms on Wednesday and will ease off gradually in the following few days. Currently, the Air Quality Health Index remains low with readings of 1 and 2. At the observatory, air temperature is 27 degrees Celsius. Relative humidity stands at 91%.
Giving 